And if I speak in a single tone and I don't change the inflection, and this is the monotone of what I get there, I've got maybe 20 seconds before your audience is going to tune this out because there is absolutely no way that I can keep their attention. But if you change it, the human brain senses the change. It knows that there has been something different. It may not be able to identify it or pinpoint it, but it goes, whoa, um, something has changed in the pattern and now I need to pay attention. Welcome to Learn or Be Learned. This is the podcast show where I read books and show how you can apply it to your life. And like a true anthropologist, I dig up stories on what people are up to and how that can impact you as well. I'm your host, Shiva Danishaker, and let's talk. All right, so I'm here with Tyler Foley. Tyler, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. So I'm a father, a husband, businessman, entrepreneur, jack of all trades, child actor, and uh, just general lover of life, Shiva. And I'm really happy to be on the podcast today to learn or be learned. Yes. You're an author too, right? That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that if was I recent. didn't throw that in with the, with my own introduction, <laughs> yes. Author of number one bestselling book, The Power to Speak Naked. So that was recent, right? That came out recently. Uh, yeah, so I self-published that in 2019, and then it got picked up by a traditional publisher who happened to pick up a copy at an event I was speaking at and asked if I'd be interested in having it uh, distributed in real actual book-and-mortar bookstores instead of just online and at my events. Mm-hmm. And so now the book will be available um, September 7th, 2021, in every bookstore throughout the world. Yay. Yeah. Um is that when the cover changed? Uh, the, so the cover didn't actually change. What's funny is I had two versions of the cover when we were doing mock-ups. Mm-hmm. And the one mock-up version was of my face because originally, again, the book was supposed to be a promo. Um, and then rapidly we, we went with the cover as is. And, and the book is called The Power to Speak Naked. That's correct. So the cover is a dude that's like, naked with the it's censored over is that some random person that yeah so the funny thing about that so that that guy is the closest approximation that we could get to me uh because when we were designing (laughs) the cover i was actually um on tour i was flying down where was i I think i was speaking in houston at the time and when we were doing the mock-up and i was between houston and west palm beach so i was in texas and florida for about two and a half weeks when we were and we had a deadline to get it done, so I didn't have a lot of time to do the mock-up. Originally, we wanted to do a photo shoot with with me because um, I have no problem getting mm-hmm. getting down to the buff in front of a camera. I'll do it any time. But uh, <laughs> I, we just we couldn't coordinate it to get a uh, photographer who could do it and in, in the time. So we ended up just going with the closest approximation of a stock photo. And the irony is, is the stock photo that we got is actually used quite regularly on mm-hmm. Amazon to promote terry cloth towels and various other things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually can't advertise my book on Amazon because the cover doesn't meet their um, <laughs> their advertising oh. regulations because it uh, um, shows overt sexual um, content <laughs> and brings attention to the breasts and or buttocks in an overt and sexual manner. Is I believe the exact quote. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we were talking, you know, the other day, and you were telling me that you did a little bit of anthropology and theology as well. Yeah. And you told me, long story short, you got kicked out. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. So I, I would definitely want to hear about this. Well, so um, my father passed away when I was six years old, and he mm-hmm. had a fascination with anthropology. And so um, I had inherited a lot of his his books and, and he, he was an eclectic reader. So, you know, I had the Lord of the Rings long before it was cool and popular. When I was mm-hmm. five years old, we traveled across um, Canada in a station wagon over the summer to go visit my nan and granddad in Nova Scotia. So they're East Coast, I'm West Coast. And, and my dad packed us up and did that. And, and he read The Hobbit to me every night. Mm-hmm. They would set up a tent and we would get in there and he would read The Hobbit to me to put me to sleep. Ironically, I've done the same thing with my daughter now a few times. We've, we've, I think um, my daughter, who's five now herself, I think we've read The Hobbit four times now. My wife hates it. She doesn't understand the language. <laughs> it just drives her insane. But my daughter absolutely loves it. And uh, But uh, one of the books that I actually got from my father, a few of them actually, were on anthropology, and they were a little bit heavier texts. And as I started to get older... Um, they were more interesting than reading the Silmarillion. So mm-hmm. I uh, decided to read the anthro texts instead. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by it. You know, archaeology is interesting, but anthropology, I think, is the cooler study because mm-hmm. that's putting context to what you find in the ground. And mm-hmm. how is civilization, how was civilization, how has it evolved, what has come of us as a people and as a race? And that, to me, was endlessly fascinating. And we have one of the best anthro programs up here in, uh, in BC. And I wanted, I wanted to get into that program so bad because it just seemed like such a, a, a fascinating place to study, mm-hmm. uh, both from a campus, like it would have been a cool place to just go to school, but then also um, just the field of study was one that I, I wanted to get into. Unfortunately, because it is so well known, it is hard to get into. Like, I think they have, you know, a couple, it's, it's easily a 20 to one application ratio, open spot to application. So they'll have like four or 500 people who apply to get into the program. And I think they're only accepting 20 or 30, maybe 40. And I was definitely didn't have the great. And I mean, I'm a good student. I was uh, mostly straight A's. You know, I, I think my GPA out of high school, I think I was at like 389. Mm-hmm. When I did go to university, I maintained a, a 392. Like I am, I'm no slouch academically, <laughs> but it still wasn't enough to get into the program. Yeah. <laughs> like they were like, Damn. and what community <laughs> service have you done? And what extracurriculars are you yeah, doing? Yeah, right. And what are you doing to change the world? Because these people have invented ways of, uh, you know, reusing microplastics. <laughs> what have you and done this person society? cured cancer. You yeah. know, it's like... so, I, was, I was not getting into that program and I was frustrated. And I went to one of the counselors on campus and they, were, they said to me, um, it's easier to transfer into a program than it is to get accepted into the program. So if you, if you are a student already, uh, then you can make it in. And I went, oh, well, that's interesting. Where, where do you have open spots? Like, what is not <laughs> in high demand? And one of the things was the theology program. And I actually had an in with the department because my cousin 
had graduated from it about at that point, I think uh, 10 or 15 years prior. Mm-hmm. And so I went, oh, okay, let's, let's give this a shot. Because again, I love, I love religion. Um, I would not consider myself a devout individual as mm-hmm. the program <laughs> rapidly determined, <laughs> but I am definitely, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of people who are like, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Okay. Like I, I am not in that group. I actually do believe in, in a divinity and, and a higher power. Um, I do believe in the God and, and it's okay if you don't, and I'm not worried about uh, other, other people's religions, but that is my belief. And I, and I hold to it, but I am definitely not a big fan of organized religion. I think that there has been um, definitely evidence to divinity everywhere that we look. And I, I, I believe personally that at some point in the future, and hopefully it's not that distance, but I feel that it will be, that science and religion will prove each other right. And, and that is my great hope for society. And again, one of the reasons why I'm absolutely fascinated with anthropology is because I believe that we, we had, if in, again, my personal belief, and I would love to be able to prove this one day, that I think we actually had that connection. And I think there was um, a separation and a diversion. And I think we're coming back to convergence in it. And I don't know that I'll ever see it in my lifetime, but man, I would love to, where um, science and religion are the same thing. But that's, again, my, my personal belief. And even having said that diatribe, you can see why I did not fit well with the, with the yeah. theology program that I enrolled <laughs> in trying to backdoor into the anthropology program. And they, they took me aside at the end of uh, the first semester and basically said, you know, at this point, you kind of have to pick a denomination because this program is really designed to put out um, priests and ministers and pastors. And if you're not going to be of the cloth, you are definitely not going to be of this program. And I went, but there's so much more. Like, look at how much we studied in this first semester. Like we mm-hmm. looked at Eastern philosophies and Western philosophies and, and the evolution of, of religions and fractionalization of the religions. So how could I pick one thing when there is no one thing? And they were like, mm-hmm. you have to pick one thing. And I went, that's so myopic, but okay, you're right. I'm not a fit <laughs> for you. You're not a fit for me. Let us peacefully walk away and peace be with you, my friend. (laughs) I walked away because that's all I could do. Yeah, no, I I totally get that. I think anthropology is incredibly interesting though. Have you, have you read Sapiens? Yes. Yes. That book is so mind opening. It's, it's a very basic introduction to a lot of hypotheses and, and concepts, but everything from, you know, how our brains got bigger, how, you know, how we used fire to make food and how we got more calories. It's literally everything is just so interesting because like you said, it uses the evidence from archaeology to kind of put a backstory behind what we think could have been. And, and, and as somebody who is a passionate storyteller and somebody who, and I've been telling stories since I was six years old, one of the things that I find the most fascinating about anthropology is that it, it fills in the gaps right? Like I can go to the Great Pyramid of Giza and from an archaeological standpoint, I can say, look at this structure and Mm -hmm. we know that a civilization built it, but it takes the anthropologist to go in 
and specifically in that case, an Egyptologist, but let's not split hairs, mm -hmm. um, to tell me the texture of it. Give me the story. Tell me about Ramses and tell me about the pharaohs and the society. And one of the other things that is so, again, what I just find fascinating, and my, my wife and I were watching uh, a show on, um, on the pyramids and Egyptian culture, and they were showing you know, how, the, how wide the Nile actually used to be compared mm -hmm. to what it is now. And, one of the, and she has this picture in her head of the desert because mm -hmm. you know, she's never been to Egypt. And um, even like when we were in Dubai, right, most of the greenery in Dubai is manufactured. Mm -hmm. And when you literally get outside of the, the city itself, it's just doom. And, um, and so for her to, to see these flyovers of, of modern day Egypt and all the green and lushness that is along the Nile, and then to have them do kind of that digital overlay of, and this is what it probably looked like 4,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then putting the story of, of you know, I, I remember them watching a foreman who, who digs uh, um, at the archaeological sites, and he was a, a palm farmer. And so, you know, he gathered the palm fruit. Mm -hmm. And he was like, it brings me such joy to know as I'm uncovering these artifacts that the life that I lead today is really not that much different from my ancestors 4,000 years ago. And that's where anthropology is so fascinating because we can tell those stories mm -hmm. and we can fill in the texture and the gaps and say, this is what society was like. This is the remnants. Archaeology will show us the remnants of what was. But yeah. in anthropology, we get to tell the story of the society. And that's what I love. Yeah, I know. Like you said, also with the whole religion and science kind of coming back at some point if you look at anthropology specifically it kind of shows us how the past our biological bodies haven't really changed since the beginning of time and how if we understand that we can incorporate that into our modern day culture and kind of understand like oh we need more sunlight we need to exercise things like that but also you know to get back into your whole storytelling thing anthropology is a great you know segue into so many stories and understanding stories. And, and I know you're really into storytelling. I was wondering, you know, what are your big tips for someone to be, because storytelling is, is essentially like an art, right? It's like captivating. It's, it's how you speak. It's, it's a form of communication. It's engaging. What are some advice you have for people that want to get better at it or struggle with this kind of um, area? Well, and first of all, I want everybody who's listening to this right now to know that everybody has a story mm -hmm. that it's actually um, we, you know, if you're living and breathing, you're a creative being. You, you can't help that. We are biologically programmed to solve problems, which means we're creative thinkers. Some people do it better than others, but we all do it. So the level at which you do it is, is irrelevant. The fact that you can do it is the point. And we all have had events in our life that we can talk about and they don't have to be, you know, tragic either. They can be really, really fascinating, fun, enjoyable stories. You know, like I, I think, I think of me and my dad driving cross country, reading the Hobbit together. Like that is such a highlight of my life, particularly because my time with my father was so truncated mm -hmm. that 
I, I think about, you know, just my love of story just from there, you know, learning like The Hobbit was such a fantastic story because I've got to hear about Smaug and, and a dragon, like the cover that we had was this golden cover and it shimmered. And every time he would, when we had one of those old Coleman propane lights. And so the light, the sound of a, of a Coleman um, lantern to this day just makes me hunger for the written word because I hear yeah. that sound that sound and i'm like it's time to read like i, yeah. I it was such a, a pavlovian thing for me as a young <laughs> child that, that that sound means book time and and what a great story to learn you know um particularly the hobbit because it was a child's tale and J.R. tolkien did a, an amazing job of putting it together and for my dad to to give that to me that was just such a fun thing so i can look back on my life and i can talk about that but then i could also talk about the tragedy that was his passing, you know? So we all have these stories. It's just finding them. One of the things that I do in my workshops when I'm, when I'm working with uh, people who want to become public speakers and we're trying to flush out their story, mm -hmm. I actually ask people to take their life and divide it into five epochs or time periods. Uh, so, you know, you just literally take your age and mm -hmm. divide by five. Um, and I try to do, you know, do you remember like third grade math round to the whole, yeah. round to the even? Mm -hmm. And you have the remainder. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like I'm 42. Yeah. So the my even is eight years, right? Mm -hmm. So 40 divided by five is eight. And then I take the remainder and I tack it on to the beginning uh, of the first one. So I've got you know zero to ten, and then one to or eleven to eighteen, and then four so forth and so on. And so for me, like you know, my most significant thing that happened in that first time period is is the passing of my father but also this cross-country trip and in the second time period if i look at it you know i had uh three really significant events happen for me um one of them was the first time i uh was recognized as the top student of my school it also happened to be the exact same time that i first grieved the passing of my father publicly and then at 14 was the first time i ever experienced stage fright and at 17 i had a medical incident that left the left side of my body paralyzed for a year so I have, you know, I have some pretty cool stories mm -hmm. in there, but we all have them. So to your question, what would I say to your audience is try that, try dividing your life into five. And for each one of those time periods, ask yourself, what is the most memorable thing that happened in this time? What is the thing that stands out in this time period? And then you get to do the really cool self anthropological study right you go yeah. why was that significant which is really all anthropology is asking it's just asking it on a larger scale um, in ancient context why was this significant and you can apply that to your story why was this significant why did it stand out what were the lessons that i needed to learn and then to tell a really effective story I would strongly encourage everybody to pick up a copy of, of Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero's Journey, and just study the ethos and pathos of, of storytelling. What is common in all of the great tales and the themes? And if you want to see a really cool, um, just fun video, anybody can YouTube the story of Harry Potter uh, slash Luke Skywalker. Okay, I got to check this out. <laughs> oh, it's it's so much fun, Shiva. Let me tell you. So because both of those follow the hero's journey model basically to the T, mm -hmm. 
um, they're, they're so clever. They're, they're like, Oh, we got to come up with a script. I know let's, let's, um, do it. We'll do the story of Luke Skywalker. And then he scratches out. He goes, no, 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 no. Harry Potter. And he goes, you know, so you've got Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter scratched out. And then it goes, um, who is, um, an orphan living with his aunt and uncle, which is true. Yeah. Until one day, um, Oh, a Jedi wizard comes and tells him that he is of, of a great wizarding Jedi family. Like, and they just keep yeah, that's crazy. Out and interchanging. But when you go through the whole story, I mean, they are, they're, they're, they're basically the same plot line because they are great tales because all great tales follow the hero's journey model. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to tell a compelling story, what you need to do is just figure out how to adopt your story into that hero's journey model and the real secret if you guys want to get super pro and use your story to to sell or to have influence you are not the hero of the story when you do this exercise you're actually the sage or the mentor so in the star wars analogy you're actually obi-wan kenobi you're not luke skywalker and so you need to tell it from the tale of this is how I helped this young person get through. So when I, if I was to tell the tale of, um, you know, for me going maybe cross country, right. From a mentor standpoint, I'm going to actually speak from a father view and explain to you why it's so important to uh, read to your child growing up, because this is the impact that it could have. Right. So now I'm the sage mentor going back, retelling the tale of when, I was read to and the impact that it had, but I want to do it from your eyes. So do you remember the, I would probably start with the phrase, like, do you remember the first book that you ever read or that was read to you? Who read it to you? How, what was the impact of it? How did it change you? I, and then you go into your story. I remember the first time my father read to me, it was the Hobbit and we were on this cross country journey. You know, did you ever go on a family vacation by car? Who can right identify with that? And you start, putting other people in your eyes as you take them through the hero's journey moments of a state of unawareness to um, a state of change uh, and influx and um, trial, and then uh, meeting the mentor or the sage and going through the trials and tribulations, learning the lessons needed to overcome your, your final um, adversary. And then the return journey home. And, you know, you can, you can do that a thousand different ways, but the, the real key to good storytelling is to make your audience the hero, not you the hero. So as you tell that whole story, you're saying that you give it in a perspective of, for example, your story would be a fatherly figure as you're, as you're leading them down the story. Yeah. Okay. That's what you want to do. Yeah. So you want to t- place your audience as the heroes so that they can identify with the journey that you've taken. So a real common one you'll see a lot um, when, right? Like when people are trying to be salesy. So if if I had like a weight loss journey, Mm -hmm. right? I don't, I wouldn't talk about, you know, I I was 350 pounds and I, I decided I'd had enough and I want to eat the, you know, I decided to change my diet. And so I was going to eat only vegan and I was going to, uh, exercise and I found this gym and I worked out and for two years. It's boring mm-hmm. for people tune out. I, 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 but if you go, who here has ever struggled with weight loss? 
who here has felt that they were uh, didn't like the number on the scale, didn't like how your clothes fit, who feels that way, right? And everybody goes, oh, yeah, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. And who has struggled with what, what is the best diet to go on? What is the best gym to go on? Who has experienced that? Oh, me, 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 me. Well, let me tell you about when I did it. And so you still have to interject your bit of story, but you want to take them on the journey. So you are the hero, right? So I'm Obi-Wan mm-hmm. Kenobi. I'm going to teach you how to use the lightsaber. I'm not going to talk about the time this old dude gave me a lightsaber and I saved the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Right. You want to interject yourself in, in the story as this is, this is the lessons that I have learned and I want to pass on to you. And that's where you get into really powerful storytelling because you, what it does is it puts the audience into the hero mentality and they get to experience your journey through your eyes with an understanding that you are providing information and a lesson to them and you're tutoring them and tutelage to give them the information that they need. Mm-hmm. And do you often use storytelling tactics like pauses and things like that, emphasis, oh, all yeah. sorts of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, there is a huge power in pause. Uh, in fact, there's, you know, there's the four Ps and there's the five Ps and all of them talk about pause, pace, pitch, oh, power. Oh, yeah, I've heard of this, yeah. Right? Yeah. So all of those are ways of really what it is. Ultimately, what it comes down to is pattern interrupt. So if as a, as the human brain evolved, right, Mm -hmm. we ignore the common, right? We, we are trained to, to take note of difference. Mm -hmm. We are not trained to take note of similarity. Mm Mm-hmm. Because so it'd be too much stimuli otherwise. It's too much stimuli. Yeah. So the, so our brain automatically starts to tune out anything that becomes homogenous. Mm-hmm. So as a speaker, if I start speaking, and if I speak in a single tone and I don't change the inflection, and this is the monotone of what I get there, I've got maybe 20 seconds before your audience is going to tune this out because there is absolutely no way that I can keep their attention. But mm-hmm. if you change it, the human brain senses the change. It knows that there has been something different. It may not be able to identify it or pinpoint it, but it goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, some, something has changed in the pattern and now I need to pay attention. So when you are orally giving a, a presentation or mm-hmm. telling a story, using some of these things like a pause to allow the brain to catch up, or to change the pace in which you're talking because you can get excited and you can get really into it and then you can slow it down Mm -hmm. and bring a little bit of calm and relaxation into the story. So finding the right ways of putting that in, having the proper inflection, you know, putting some power behind it, getting angry and mad and, and bringing volume to it. Those are all things that we can do to make a story more engaging, to make it feel more enlightening. And, uh, it's just, you know, it comes with practice, but you yeah. look at the really good storytellers, really good orators. Um, and you can get examples all over the world for it, but just look at like the really, really super dynamic political figures who just captivate people. Cause they tend to be the ones who get the most uh, press and presence. Mm-hmm. And you just look at what they do and how they use their, not only their voice, but their body to tell stories. Cause that's that really half the time, that's all politicians are doing. They're trying to tell, sell you on, on their version of a story of history. 
Yeah, I I was gonna say like you know presidents often you you see that the most or anyone in politics really because like you said they get the most uh, press time. That's yeah no that's that's crazy and with and with that right you can so there's things you can do to modulate how you speak how you present yourself how you storytell. Now how does someone get over that stage fright? Like you said you were 14 right when you had yep. your your big stage fright moment and. And what I guess a follow up with that is, as someone I see, I've done uh, growing up. I, I used to do um, Bollywood dances on stage. Parents wanted me to do it. I did it, and you know I used to do debate. So I, I have speech. I have dance, but each one had its own different stage fright moment because it was a different event on stage. So it's not like a one size fits all. No. How do you get over your? stage fright because there is you know good stress and bad stress and i'm assuming you know with stage fright it's all bad stress <laughs> well yes and no and okay. so again it, that becomes when it comes to stage fright it's a mindset thing and the first thing to recognize is what stage fright actually is because a lot of people confuse uh, a fear of public speaking with stage fright. Stage fright is a for real and actual thing and a phenomenon that most people can and will experience if mm -hmm. asked to present in any way. Fear of public speaking is a fictitious made up uh, social norm that is highly misunderstood. And the reason I say that is if I was to ask your audience right now, and I want everybody who's listening to this podcast right now, and Shiva included, I want you to nod if you are one of the 77% of North Americans who identify, or within the world, actually, the statistic works all over, but this is a North American stat, 77% of North Americans who feel that they are afraid of public speaking. I just want you to nod if you are one of those people, wherever you're listening to this, nod along. Now, if you are nodding, I want you to think about the last time you were at a restaurant and ordered food. Because if you were able to go to a restaurant, that is a public place, and you were able to talk to your wait staff, who was very likely a complete stranger to you, you were able to speak in public to a stranger and get a thing that you wanted. So you are not afraid of public speaking. Now, there is a small percentage of the world who have very large social anxieties. And so there are a percentage that do actually have the fear of public speaking, but it's not the 77% that claim to have one. Mm -hmm. But those 77% very likely have at some point experienced stage fright. And stage fright is drastically different, but we confuse the two. We use those terms interchangeably, and it's a disservice to actually getting over the fear of public speaking and the fear of stage fright. Because if I can identify that I'm not actually afraid of public speaking, so now that's not a thing that I have to do. Now I get to go, well, why am I in my mammalian brain having this fight or flight response to this environment that I'm in right now? Why do I feel attacked? Because that's what's going to push that fight or flight response is a perceived fear of attack. So why am I perceiving that I am being attacked? What is making my brain make that connection? And usually what it is, is a fear of judgment. 
So you look at you doing dance, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly Bollywood dance. Were you doing it competitively? Uh, no. It was, no? It, was a, it was like a festivals. The festival performance. Mm-hmm. Did you feel uh, any kind of sense of obligation to just do it good because you needed to, um, you know, make your parents proud or, or do the troop good or like, what was your thought process with that? Oh yeah, definitely social obligation and just the, the amount of people in the audience. And, and I guess another thing would be age difference as someone who's much younger than the audience that's watching. Right. So see, and I want everybody who's listening to this right now to note kind of the projection now that Shiva had put on him, right? So he's so much younger. So there's a perceived gap. And anytime we perceive a gap where we view ourselves in our situation as less than, mm-hmm. that's where the brain mistakenly goes attack because there is a, a greater presence. And we, again, way, way back, way back in the brain, greater presence equals predator. And so as soon as we feel judgment, and that's a story that we're telling in our head, it's just a story. As soon as we feel that we are being judged or evaluated somehow, our brain starts going, well, what if, and what if, and what if I don't do this? And it's those what if stories that start to trigger some of those um, hormones and pheromones within our body that start pushing the adrenaline through us because now we're prepped for fight or flight. And that's when we start to get the dry mouth and we start to get the shivers and the shakes and the hard time breathing because our body is going, I either need to completely and totally protect all of my vulnerable areas, or I need to get the hell out of here, or I need to stand up and just beat this down. But I got to do something and standing here is unnatural. So I've got to, I've got to do something other than what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is you're fine. Mm-hmm. Because the audience, particularly, right? You go to an Indian festival. I've been to a few. <laughs> Are those people having a good time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> one of the, that's, if nobody has ever gone to any kind of mm-hmm. Indian festival, you are doing yourself a disservice because that <laughs> is the party of the century. <laughs> the food, the smell, the joy mm-hmm. that is the in colors. any, any yeah. festival, right? That is a culture that knows how to celebrate everything. (laughs) Like I just, man, I just love, 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 love. And, and so you think of the joy that is in that crowd right now. Are they excited to see a performance of people dancing and doing a a nice little Bollywood routine? Mm -hmm. And and honestly, I've spoken all over the world. The, an Indian crowd knows how to like, like yeah. applaud and celebrate and cheer like no yeah. one else does it better i swear to you i swear <laughs> also so, movie theaters yeah yeah well, right like they yelling at yeah movies. yeah 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 you've seen it <laughs> i've been there yeah. yeah yeah no it's 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 fantastic well of course i've been to a movie theater in india because it's the only place to escape the heat <laughs> <laughs> very true you gotta, you gotta go to the movie but um i actually remember uh going to a movie theater in thailand for the first time uh, and being blown away because they sing the national anthem at the beginning. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Why? Well, okay. I mean, this makes sense. To, like, it, it just made, I, mm-hmm. I got it at the time, but everybody stood up and you did the thing. And 
and yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was interesting from a, a cultural standpoint, but the, the bottom line is, is anytime we go to a performance, the crowd is on your side. Mm-hmm. Right. And particularly in that environment, that is a, that is a crowd that is definitely rooting for the performers. Like, like that's, oh, yeah. that's a people and a culture that knows how to celebrate and give love to a performance. So they're on your side. They want you to succeed. And yet mm-hmm. in your head, you're like, well, what if I don't, what if I don't meet those expectations? What if I, and I promise you, as long as you can get through and you smile, <laughs> they are going to be, they're going to clap and yeah. be happy for you. Right. Yeah. And yeah, you may, you know, put the hand in the wrong spot or you might, you know, you might be a half a tempo off or you step back in the, at the wrong time, whatever. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. And, and what about a situation where you are being judged? Like whether it was the debate that I was doing, you're trying to win over a judge or you're trying to sell, like you have a sales pitch or, you know, you're speaking yes. to an audience, or you're trying to sell them. That's, and isn't that the worst, right? Mm-hmm. But again, so you are perceiving judgment. Mm-hmm. because they, they are a judge. They are there to evaluate you. But trust me, as, have you ever, just out of curiosity, because you did do debate, mm-hmm. have you ever been on the other side of the table? Have you ever judged a competition? Yeah. What did you want every team that went up to do? Try their best. Just, you yeah. Know. Give it their all. Did you, as a judge, because that's your job, right? Mm-hmm. Now you're there. You're there to be critical. You're there to judge them. You're there to evaluate their performance. As each student came up or each individual came to, to give their statement, their argument, before they started, you as a judge, were you going, I hope you bomb this one, kid? <laughs> no, that'd probably terrify them. <laughs> exactly. But it wasn't what you were thinking. Yeah, no. I know I've judged, I've judged dance competitions. I've mm-hmm. judged speech competitions. I've judged um, skating competitions. Like you name it. I've, I've been a judge at, at multiple things where I've had to evaluate performance. And my, my hope every time is that they're a 10 out of a 10. Cause I want to, I want to be entertained. I want to be educated. I'm there. I'm not there because I want everything to go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm there because I want everybody to succeed. And my hope up front is that you're going to blow me away and knock my socks off. And that's why we go to anything, any performance, any presentation, anything that we go to, we're going there to be educated or entertained. We're there to have an experience of some kind. We don't want it to be bad. We want it to be good. And so your audience is on your side. Your audience has your back, whether you're being a formally judged or if you're being passively judged, you are still, you have the power because I want you to deliver. I'm already on your side. I'm already rooting for you. Now, all you have to do is deliver. Now, that is where you really have to focus on your prep work, right? Why did you rehearse so much before you went and did a dance, mm-hmm. right? We didn't throw you up a day before and be like, here's some moves, go do that. and Congratulations, right? No, no, no. We, we took the time to like show you <laughs> these are the moves that I want you to do. This is the rehearsal. This is where you're at. Let's correct some of these things so that we do it. So you rehearsed as a performer so that you got it right. You didn't go into the debate blindly. Mm-hmm. No, you were given a topic. You did the research. You knew whether you were arguing for or against a topic. I remember when I was 17, I... Um, I was in social studies, 31 AP. So it was the advanced placement social studies. And I went to a fine arts high school. So 
we had we were on the quarter system. So you had two classes, one in the morning, one in the afternoon for 10 weeks. And then you started over again. And over the course of the year, you had your eight classes that you would have normally had if you were on a semester system. And I was given the debate. So we our, our senior thesis was a 15-minute time debate. And you had to randomly draw your, um, your topic and then randomly draw if you were for or against. So it was, it was totally randomized. I and our partners were randomized too. And my poor partner, Alec Harrison, who is just a brilliant composer, um, genius musician, and incredibly scholarly. Uh, and I, I had the, I was still scholarly, but I had the uh, reputation of, of <laughs> being a little loose with, uh, <laughs> with my time commitments to scholastics. I would get stuff done and I'd knock it out of the park, but I was mm -hmm. not really, I, I wouldn't, call myself what I would say a good partner. And so he felt really bad. And I felt bad that I had that reputation. So I wanted to work hard for Alec because he's a good man. But we drew uh, the topic, was the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki justified? Oof. Not was it moral, not what, right? Was it justified? And then, so what are you hoping for when you draw that? You're like, Please be the negative. Yeah. Please be the negative. I want to argue that that was not justified. And we drew the affirmative. So I had to come up with reasoned argument that the, the use of nuclear weapons. Atomic bombs. Was justified. Yeah. And I, I remember when we drew it, Alec, he turned the worst shade of gray. <laughs> like, he was just sickly because he was like how am i going to do this and how am i going to do it with tyler oh. <laughs> and i and i racked my brain and i went right to storytelling storytelling i knew was how i was going to win over it's how any politician wins over a crowd you can't you uh, it's an old adage that stats tell but stories sell and i had to sell this i had to sell that the use of nuclear weapons was justified and so what I did was I poured through a whole bunch of textbooks and I found um, a diary of a man who survived um, both bombings. So he was at wow. Hiroshima, evacuated, was sent to Nagasaki, and it was bombed again poor guy yeah and so i'm reading through this journal and i'm reading uh, an account that he had of and, and it's just devastating too when he goes through it he, he's like i still remember the sound or the lack thereof and he said all i felt was heat and the heat was so intense and so bright that i had to shield my eyes and the last thing that i saw was my wife grabbing my daughter and shielding her and then I started to see their skin melt. Oh my God, you read that. And I did, I read it word for word right out of this, this text, this diary. But here's the thing. He wasn't describing the bombing of either city, which he had experienced. He was describing the burning of his village a year previous to that and why he was forced to relocate to Hiroshima because of the incendiary bombing that the US was doing. And Japan would not surrender. 
And the loss of life because of incendiary bombing was a hundred times that of the loss of life for the nuclear bombs. Two nuclear bombs were dropped and two days later, Japan is surrendering. So when I write, I know your audience can feel it right now. It hits mm -hmm. you in the heart. Why? That's the power of story. It's why we have been communicating as human beings through story for thousands of years. Because now you can see through the eyes. And that's what I did. I had to take the audience because there was not going to be a logical, there was no way that I could make a logical connection to why this was justified if I couldn't get the emotional piece first. Mm -hmm. Alec was crying. My teacher, Mrs. <laughs> McDonald, was crying. The two girls who were debated against us had this, they had the same look that Alec had when he drew me and, and that. <laughs> they were like, oh, checkmate. We don't, we haven't even gone yet. Right. Because they had all the facts and figures. That's mm -hmm. all they, that's all they concentrated on was the facts and figures. And I went straight for the heart. I went yeah. right for the gut. And that's the power of story. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because at the end of the day, the judge is still a person and emotions trumps any amount of statistical evidence that you could just bomb it out. And the judge is human. Yeah. The judge is human and the judge is on your side. So although they are there to evaluate you, and I think that's the other thing too, is let's be conscious of the language that we're assigning to people. Mm -hmm. You know, our audience is there to be entertained and a judge is there to evaluate. Mm -hmm. So when I'm not being judged, I'm being evaluated. There's a little bit softer connotation to it. And now my job is to have a positive evaluation. So I always look how, what is the best, how can I get the most positive evaluation out of the scenario? And yeah. that's when you start to find the magic in presentation. So, so your mindset here is that people are on your side, correct? Always. Even when you're selling something, like, like, like let's say someone doesn't want to hear you sell them something. Right. Or, so, or your boss is like, you have 60 seconds, you know, pitch it to me or get out. How do you go under that pressure? 60 seconds, sell me a pen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and if anybody's watched The Wolf of Wall Street mm -hmm. and the story of Jordan, what, what's his last name? Belmont, Bel Belford. Belford. Yeah. Yeah. Belford. You know, and they've got that scene, right? And he's like, you know, they, everybody was trying to sell the pen and they're like, well, and they were, what were they doing? They were talking about, the stats of it stats of it and you know it's great and it's a uniball and it does this and what did jordan do he grabbed it and he was like you know i'm gonna write you a check right now uh for a million dollars but i just need you to sign it and the guy's like well i don't have a pen he's like well here i'll sell it to you for 100 bucks yeah right there's the, it's the emotional it has nothing to do with the stats i didn't have to do anything about it but now the emotion of a million dollar check and all I need is to buy this $100 pen. Mm -hmm. I'm getting a thousand time ROI on it. Obviously, I'm going to buy the pen. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's coming back to the emotional level. So from a sales perspective, if you, if first of all, if you're a salesman and you're hearing no a lot and everybody just doesn't want to hear you, change up your tactic. First of all, stop trying to sell. <laughs> it's what I do when any networking event that I go to, I don't go with the mindset that I need clients. I go looking for strategic partners who can help me grow my business because not everybody needs your thing. That's mm -hmm. the other thing. So get better at qualifying and ask questions up front. One of the uh, statistics I like to throw out when I'm doing my workshops for presentations in general 
audience engagement, if it's a, di a monologue, so if I'm just talking, blah, 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 audience engagement is 78%. But if I make it a dialogue and I get information from them, I involve them in the presentation, the um, engagement goes up to 92%. Mm -hmm. And that goes for anything with sales, right? You get the salesman and they jump on and you're on the phone and all of a sudden they're like, hey, and I've got this thing and what are you doing, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, whoa, leave me alone, <laughs> yeah. hang up, go, right? Or... You have somebody who goes, uh, I used to, one of my first jobs that I ever had was selling pianos. And one of the, I would never just pitch out the piano um, tuning. I would, and this was, this was the training that I got from, from my mentor and, and the piano tuner that I worked with. The first thing I would say is, hi, Shiva, my name's Tyler. I'm the local piano tuner who comes to your town. I'm just wondering, how does your piano sound today? Mm-hmm. Now, you may or may not have a piano. So for the people who didn't have a piano, they're like, I don't even have a piano. I go, oh, I'm sorry. I, I must have misunderstood. Um, thank you so much for your time. I'll let you go, right? I've already disqualified them. I've assumed that they had it. They let me know that I didn't. And we walked away. But mm -hmm. for the people who did have the piano, they'd be like, I don't know. It sounds pretty good. Um, or, it would, or it's drastically out of tune. Mm -hmm. Right. Either way, I would get information for those who it was really good. I'd say, oh, how often do you play it? Oh, right. I want information from them mm -hmm. because even if they're not a client now, what do I know? Mm -hmm. They have a piano. Yeah. So they may not need it tuned this year, but they will next year mm -hmm. because pianos drift out of tune. That's just what pianos do. They constantly need servicing and tuning. So I would say, you know, oh, great. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Just remember that we come once a year. And if it's all right, I'd just like to put you on my follow-up list and I'll call you next year when we're in town, if that's okay. And whether they said yes or no, I still put them on the list. I mean, it's a little shady, mm -hmm. but at least now I know they actually have a piano, right? Yeah. But they also like courtesy that I've asked them if I can put them on the list. And most times people would say yes, but it's having the dialogue. It's including your potential customers in and qualifying them and not wasting their time if they're not right. Mm -hmm. So like for me, I'm a public speaker coach. I know that 77% of the people have a fear of public speaking or think they do, which means technically three out of every four people I walk into should want my service. But here's the next statistic. Even though, um, Public speaking is identified as a leadership trait and people who are afraid to public speak have a 10% reduction in their earning potential and a 15% reduction in their ability to get a promotion, which further reduces their earning potential. After I've given all those statistics, only 8% of people will seek professional help to get better at public speaking. It means if I go to a networking event that has 50 people in it, mm -hmm. at most, there are four people out of there, less than 10% who are my potential clients and customers. So why would I spend all the time? Do you need public speaking coaching? Hey, I'm a public speaker coach. Hey, do you need public speaking coach? Or I could go up and, and go, who here hates coming to these things? Who identifies as an introvert and absolutely positively struggles coming up with a creative way to tell your story over and over again? 
If you're somebody who doesn't like networking or doesn't get networking and really just wants to find a better way to do it and maybe bring people to them, my name is Tyler Foley and I have a proven strategy that will help you network better without having to carpet bomb this room with a whole bunch of business cards. So if that's something that interests you, I'm over here, just come talk to me when you can. Mm -hmm. That brings people to me because I've identified what their problem is. I'm speaking to them and I'm letting them self-qualify and come to me. Yeah. And now I don't have to be bothered with everybody else. And that makes my job easier. So yeah. it's having that dialogue would be my first suggestion to people who are trying to get better at the sales. Okay. So lastly, I have one more question. It's a little bit more uh, about my situation and hopefully people can, you know, maybe relate or they have something that it kind of helps them as well. So if I'm doing, you know, let's say I'm, I'm kind of hooked on this whole storytelling um, emotional ride instead of, you know, statistics and stuff. That makes complete sense from an anthropology perspective, from a lot of different angles, right? What would you suggest I do for my podcast episodes where I do, where I read a book and then I kind of, you know, spit out like what are the highlights like how can that help you or like my little mini episodes that i do how do you make that more engaging when it's just you okay great question mm -hmm. so first of all um even when it is just you talking it is not just you because you are still talking to people the people are there you're listening to it right now right mm -hmm. anybody who's listening to this right now first of all anybody who's listening to this right now i want you to do me a favor if you are finding value in learn or be learned. And what Shiva has to offer to you, if you are regularly tuning into this and finding value of the guests that he's bringing on or the information that he's bringing himself to this podcast, first of all, I want you to hit pause on whatever device you're listening to, whatever platform you are, and give it a five-star review. Because the only way that he's gonna be able to get better guests on that are able to bring information to you so that you can hear it, because otherwise, why are you tuning in? The only way he's gonna do that is the more five-star reviews he gets. So I need you to hit pause right now and give a five-star review. And now, if you come back after that, I will tell you and I will answer Shiva's question. So that, Shiva, is going to be your first clue is to know that your audience is, is listening. So although mm -hmm. it feels monologuish because it is, it's still, um, it's still communal. You still, and particularly on a, on a platform like this, people are tuning in for a reason and they're actively engaged. They want to be informed. So you have to put yourself in the mindset of your audience and really do the audience analysis. Um, I have a great tool on my website too. If anybody wants to download it, you can go, you can get it. It's the audience analysis tool. That's uh, free download. And I make it available to everybody. I'll but put that the in the description. there are universal. What, you know, what do you need? What is your demographic? What are you hoping to get out of this particular thing? So if in the example you gave where you're reading books, instead of saying, this is what I found fascinating, it's just a subtle tweak of the language. Hopefully you found this fascinating. What I took away from that was, and maybe you felt the same way that, right? Anytime that we can speak to our audience and direct it to them, Mm -hmm. So we, even though they can't respond physically back, that they can feel included in it, that's going to create that engagement because I'm speaking to you right now. You, the audience, 
need to be engaged with this. You, the audience, need to give Shiva the five-star review. You need to tell him what you want out of this podcast, what is bringing you back, what information would be valuable to you, and elicit that feedback so that as you are doing some of these shows that are just you, and it is a monologue to your audience, at least you know for sure that you're giving them the value that they want, and then tweak the language so that you're speaking to them and not in the in the first person, but in the third person. Mm-hmm. And so to clarify, you said speak in the third person and not the first person of saying like, oh, this is what I got, by, but by saying like, but what do you mean by speaking in third person with that? So um, switching it. So again, instead of I, I saw this, be like, hopefully, I don't know how you feel, but I took this. What are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's the um, right. It's not the first person perspective. It's asking from the third, uh, the third person perspective. What are your thoughts? You, your, um, they, mm-hmm. what, however you want to do it, take away the, the first person, I, 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 and go, um, what are your, did you identify with that? One of the things that I took away from this, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I encourage you to tell me what you took away, because one of the things that struck me about this was, and when I got a comment from this listener last week about this topic, which created this research, one of the things I found interesting was that they had noted this. And so I went and I found this. Hopefully this answers your question. You, your constantly throw it back Mm -hmm. to your audience. And in sales, it's the same way. You want to make sure that you are putting yourself in your, your client or your customer's shoes and asking them, how do you feel? Does this make sense to you? What, what can I do to answer your, co- your questions or your concerns? Or what are your fears? What are your actual pain points? You know, constantly qualifying. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you'll find you'll have a lot more success in pretty much any kind of presentation. Wow, this is great. Well, Tyler, I appreciate you being on this show, man. This is an awesome talk. I can't wait for people to hear this. Well, it was my joy and my pleasure, Shiva. Hopefully uh, they learned something and, uh, and I was learned as well. <laughs>